Welcome to the latest episode of Talk IP with RNG. My name's Rebecca Conroy, and I'm joined today by Duncan Nevitt, a partner in our clean tech and energy practice. Today's episode is all about innovations in wind energy. It's a technology that's absolutely critical to the energy transition. We'll be assessing the state of the industry and seeing what we can learn from published patent filings. Thanks for joining the podcast today, Duncan. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work in renewable and sustainability fields? Hi, thanks, Rebecca. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Duncan. I am a partner in our energy team uh, and I have a background in physics, which has allowed me to have the opportunity to work across a wide range of technical areas in the energy industry. So I've had some interesting work in uh, wind turbine manufacture and subsea drilling. Uh, and I've also done some work on the solar field and even ventured into some sustainable packaging uh, material work as well. So a wide range of uh, subject matter that I've handled. And if you look beyond me to our wider team, we've also got uh, a broad range of experience across all relevant technologies to the industry. And indeed, we've got several team members who have worked directly in, in the industry before they joined our firm. Thanks for that. How's wind power faring in relation to other renewable energy sources? Um, in, in, a, in a nutshell, fairly, fairly well. It's been, it's been a strong few years for the, for the growth of the wind industry. And and that's both true for the UK and, and globally. A large part of that has come from from China in particular, where we've seen huge infrastructure developments going on, primarily in the in the onshore context, but but also more recently in in offshore imp implementations as well. Um, the US has also been a large driver for for wind growth in recent years. Uh, and then if we look a little bit closer to home in the UK, we're certainly seeing some some big activity happening. Uh, and again, similar to China, the more recent activities we've seen in the UK have largely been in the in the offshore context. So what does the general patent landscape look like? Are there any trends and insights we can take away? Yes, there are. I think if you if you just take a step back first and, and, and consider that it, across all technologies in the whole patent landscape, companies operating in China and the US are, are nearly always at the forefront of, of, the, of the league tables. They tend to be where most patent applications are filed. And then obviously then if we look into the, the, the wind sector in particular, China are therefore perhaps unsurprisingly, given what I've I've just been saying about their their wind developments and wind capacity, China are leading the way in terms of the number of patent applications we've seen over the past decade or so. What potentially is slightly different though to the broader picture is that European companies are sitting in second place when it comes to overall patent filings, with US companies just slightly behind in third. And I don't think that's actually a reflection on, on the US underperforming, but more a reflection on, on Europe perhaps overperforming or outstripping what they may be expected to do uh, in, 
in perhaps other sectors. There's certainly a lot of activity in Europe in the wind wind sector. And so it's quite encouraging from our perspective to see that that European companies are are seeing patent applications as as an important part of their strategy. That's a great initial overview of the sector. Thank you. We have some special guests on the episode today. Yes, we do. I'm I'm pleased that we're joined by by several of my colleagues and several of our energy team. Uh, I'll I'll go ahead and introduce them shortly, but maybe I'll just give a quick overview of what each of them are planning to talk about and what we're hoping to explore in more detail for the rest of the podcast. So we we're going to start with uh, Olivia, who's going to help uh, guide us through the insights and information we've seen on how energy is going to be transmitted and stored in the context of wind power. Then we're going to jump over to my, my colleague Bruce, who's going to guide us through the, the world of offshore wind and particular floating platforms and technologies surrounding that. Uh, and then finally, uh, we've got Adam, who's going to join us and talk to us about the wind power from a sustainability context. And in particular, we're going to look into how we we're going to need to deal with decommissioning wind turbines uh, in a sustainable way as their as their life cycles end. So let's kick off and uh, welcome Olivia Buckingham. Hi, Duncan. Thank you for having me today. It's uh, really good to be here. Uh, so I'm Olivia Buckingham and I'm a trainee in our electronics and software team based in our Cambridge office. Great. Thanks, Olivia. And I understand you've been looking into some interesting work that's been done in the context of storing the energy and transmitting the energy from wind turbines. Uh, yes, so what I'd like to focus on today and um, one of the more interesting concepts we're seeing is the harnessing of wind power to generate green hydrogen. Now, this is a great idea for several reasons. Of course, it can act as a vehicle for the storage of renewable energy for days when wind resources are insufficient. But also, as wind is so unpredictable, oftentimes when the production of wind energy outstrips demand, we end up with curtailment which is a real unfortunate waste. Essentially, using wind power to generate green hydrogen provides us with a storage solution. The production of green hydrogen will also be key in helping to address some of the bigger challenges in decarbonisation. In particular, decarbonisation in industries like shipping, which is one of the biggest sources of transport-related CO2 emissions. Interesting. I mean, obviously that sounds incredibly important and valuable if it can be done well technically challenging as well, I assume. What 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 are we seeing in terms of patents in this area? Is there any uh, interesting insights you can you can share with us? Uh, so you can get a general idea of trends in this area by looking at the relevant patent classification codes. And there is a code covering hydrogen production from non-carbon containing sources, for example, by water electrolysis. And this shows that innovation in this area is really ramping up. More interestingly, within the context of this podcast, when you narrow things down with a crude keyword search to only publications that additionally mention the words wind turbine, you get an indication of how the intersection between wind power and green hydrogen is developing. And you see a really sharp increase year on year from about 2016 onwards. It'll be really interesting to see if this general trend upwards continues. Interesting. So there's certainly been a, a growth of patent activity in the past five to ten years by the sounds of things. 
that's that's what we expect to see when a, a technology is starting to to evolve beyond initial conception stage. But what does that mean in terms of the practical implementation of this? Are we seeing these this technology being used yet in in any meaningful sense commercially? Uh, well, yes, absolutely. Uh, we have had instances of people connecting wind turbines to electrolyzers. Um, in fact, as part of a pilot project in Denmark, Siemens Gamesa produced green hydrogen by way of an electrolyzer powered either by the grid or by an onshore turbine. Work on this project started in about 2021, and the resulting hydrogen was actually used to fuel taxis in Copenhagen. Oh, nice. That sounds impressive. And um, I mean, Siemens Gamesa therefore sound like they're fairly advanced in, in in some of the work they're doing here. Have you have you just had a chance to look into any of their their patents and see what there's what's lurking in there? Uh, yeah, so recent publications do show a continued interest in this area of tech uh, with applications covering offshore systems and applications directed to improving the safety of such systems, for example. Of course, there's always a lag between the filing of a patent application and then its subsequent publication, which does mean that more recent filing activity won't yet be available for public inspection. What is noticeable, though, is the focus on offshore systems, which, as you said earlier, Duncan, are of increasing interest. We're seeing applications with titles such as offshore wind turbine with a fluid supply assembly comprising a hose and a hose reel. A look at Siemens Gamesa's website tells us that they are looking to integrate electrolyzers into offshore turbines for green hydrogen production in collaboration with Siemens Energy. In terms of timelines, we should have a demonstration by about 2025 or 2026. And I can imagine we'll see related patent filing activity in the run up to this. Great, that's really interesting. And I, and I think that's um certainly suggests we should keep an eye on on this area of the patent landscape maybe for for listeners who are are less familiar with the patent system i can just explain a bit by what you mean in terms of a a lag between filing and and subsequent publication so in general there's a there's an 18 month gap between when you first file your patent application and when it subsequently publishes for everybody in the world to see and that can be a slight disadvantage for people like Olivia and I who are wanting to see what companies are are up to and, and, and assess some some interesting activities there. But on the flip side, for the patent owner, it's quite a useful quirk of the system. It means you can input your your invention into the patent system and and put your flag in the ground for seeking protection. But you don't need to reveal to the public yet that you've done so and it can sit there um, unpublished and confidential for up to 18 months so potentially quite a useful tool and, and also a good reason for not being too hesitant about using the patent system if you're worried about uh, preemptively disclosing your your invention to the public well, thank, thanks very much, Olivia, and I think it's probably a good opportunity uh, and, and a nice way to introduce our, our next member of the podcast, uh, Bruce, because Bruce is going to expand a bit more on the the, the offshore context uh, and in particular some of the issues surrounding uh, floating uh, turbines and floating platforms. So hi, Bruce. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You're um, welcome. 
So I'm a senior associate um, and I work in the London office. Like you, Duncan, I've got a broad physics background, so I find, find myself involved in lots of different things. So what I find really interesting about the wind sector is that it faces many, many different challenges. And in the offshore context, one of the more fundamental challenges is how do you actually install wind turbines safely and securely at sea? It's relatively easy to do that in shallow water because you can use very tall turbines such that you can fix the bottom of those turbines into the seabed. But that only works up to a certain water depth, up to about 60 metres. And then beyond that depth, you need to come up with a different idea. And that's where we get into the world of floating wind turbines. Now, in the UK, we have a problem in that we're running out of space for new wind turbine sites in these shallow waters. So new wind farms that are being built are increasingly being located in these deeper waters. But it's not just a UK problem, in fact, because it's been estimated that about 80% of global offshore wind potential is only profitable in these deeper waters. So it's really important for not just the UK, but globally, that we figure out how to install these wind farms efficiently in these deeper waters. This is made even more challenging because the process for physically installing these wind farms, as you can imagine, is quite tricky. When you're out at sea, the wind's blowing, the sea's a bit rough, it all gets a bit difficult. The good news, I guess, is that these challenges aren't really new. They've been considered and overcome by the oil and gas industry, who've been using anchored platforms in deep waters for a very long time. And so what I find really interesting is that the solutions that the oil and gas industry have discovered during that time could provide pointers for how similar problems could be resolved for this new industry for wind for the wind sector. So so perhaps not quite reinventing the wheel, but 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 reinventing the floating floating platform maybe. What <laughs> um, what what in that in that sense then, Bruce? I mean, what kind of innovations are we talking about here for the for for what the oil and gas industry had been had been building um, and working on that that you think the the, the wind industry might want to um, make use of or or um, look to further develop? Yeah, sure. So I've been seeing essentially three common methodologies for how to make a wind turbine float that essentially have got their origins in the oil and gas industry. So the first one is floating platforms, which you've kind of touched on there, um, and semi-submersibles, which are essentially a floating structure that gets moored to the seabed with slackish anchor lines, and you install the wind turbine on the floating structure. Now that's been used by the oil and gas industry, albeit in a different way, since the 1950s. So that's a very well established way of, of um, installing a, a structure. Another way is what's called a spar structure, which is where the turbine is attached to a heavy but buoyant cylinder that sits below the sea line. 
and that keeps the turbine vertically stable. And again, that's not new. It's been used in the oil and gas industry since the 70s. And then finally, you have what's called tension leg platforms, which kind of does what they say on the tin. Like floating platforms, they're moored to the seabed, but instead of using slack mooring cables, you use cables that are under tension. And that helps reduce the amount of um, vertical motion that the turbine undergoes. So it prevents it from bobbing about when the sea gets rough. And again, that's been used in the oil and gas industry in the 1980s. So the, the broad methodologies we are seeing being transported from the oil and gas industry into the wind industry, where we're seeing areas of innovation is how these broad methodologies are being improved upon in response to specific problems posed by the slightly different implementation that is installing wind turbines on each of these structures. Right, I'm with you. Um, and I mean, I, I I think I know the answer to this, but it's good to ask and certainly for hopefully the listeners to, to hear. What's your view then on how you can go about patenting improvements to earlier technologies? Is it is it something you can do? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, but it needs to Excellent. be, yes, always <laughs> good to have a, a positive answer. Um, the key point is that the improvement improvements themselves need to be new and not obvious from what's already been disclosed, what's in the public domain. So there could be an earlier patent for a particular type of offshore support structure. And a later company could come along and patent their own improvements to that support structure, so long as the improvement is different and is innovative in itself. It's important to note, though, that what the latter company doesn't get is immunity from infringing the earlier patent. Um, and it's really important important to emphasize this because I think it's it's quite a common misconception that these are two separate legal questions you know can we stop someone else from doing something with our patent is one legal question and a very different question is are we ourselves prevented from doing something by someone else's patent yeah yeah no that's that's well put and I think it's it's absolutely a very important thing to always have in mind when when sort of looking into the patent system. I always refer to like to refer to patents uh, as uh, as being an exclusionary right. It's there to allow you to stop someone else doing something, um, but not necessarily to allow you to do it. Um, having said that, uh, it certainly um, strengthens your your hand if you've got a patent and someone else has one, and you both want to try and do something similar to one another. If you've each got something to offer, then maybe you can you can come to a good agreement between you two and it can uh, it can result in a, a positive outcome. Um, OK, so. When you've got situations like you have here, Bruce, or like the, the people in the floating offshore field have where you're improving on something that's done before, um, and you're and you're developing that solution with a view to deploying it. What's your view on when you should be seeking a patent or seeking to protect that innovation in a, in a patent? That's a good question. I think the first thing to say is that there's no need to have a finished product 
to start applying for a patent. A lot of people think that they need to finish the development process before they protect that product, but it's the idea that the patent protects rather than the product itself. So you don't actually need a product to get started with a patent process. Um, in terms of exact timings, it's it's an interesting question because I think there's essentially a tension between two slightly competing interests. On the one hand, we would recommend getting a patent on file as soon as possible. There's a number of different reasons why you would want to do that, but um, essentially having your patent filed at the earliest possible opportunity is very good. It prevents other people potentially from from um, obtaining their own patents and from a commercial point of view it's potentially helpful for raising funds but the other side of the coin is that you need to know enough about how the invention works for you to be able to give a full description of the invention in the patent application and if that isn't provided then the patent application could potentially run into problems further down the line so there is a bit of a tension. The development needs to be advanced enough so that you need to know how the invention works, but you need to ideally file the patent as soon as you possibly can. And uh, absolutely, and and I think you know that's something we often are are faced with in our jobs, isn't it? Day to day, we'll we'll be helping clients work work out that conundrum and um, and and help them make sure they do they do the right thing for them. It's also, I guess, probably worth mentioning that, you know, once you filed your patent, if you if you then come up with some extra things you think it might be good to have in your system, you can you can always file follow on applications as well. So there's there's a generally an ongoing patent strategy uh, with with a with anyone who's developing developing products or projects. Well, great, thank you, Bruce. Um, We'll we'll now move on and introduce our our final team member for the today's podcast, which is uh, Adam. Um, hi, Adam. Hi, Duncan. How are we doing? Yeah, good, good. Thank you. And you're going to guide us through the maybe I suppose it's fitting you're coming at, at sort of the end of the podcast because we're looking now at what we might want to do with wind turbines as they reach their end uh, their end point and the end of their life cycle. You've you've done some investigation and had some thoughts into this. So why don't you uh, maybe tell us all a little bit about yourself and um, on what it is you've been looking at? Yeah, thank you very much, Duncan, for having me on. Um, so my name is Adam Kelvey and my background is in material science and um, I've got a particular interest in sustainability and sustainable materials. And so I did a uh, yeah, a bit of a dig into actually how sustainable are these these wind turbines and uh, I started off by having a dig into the the lifetime carbon emissions of uh, wind power to see how it stacks up compared to other energy sources um, and the short answer is it's pretty good it's pretty good um, when we talk about the lifetime carbon emissions of an energy source we mean the total carbon emissions generated by the construction, the transport, operation, maintenance, and the decommissioning of that energy source. And for wind turbines, uh, these emissions are very front-loaded. In fact, it's the construction of the steel tower, the concrete foundations, or any sort of offshore gubbings that, uh, that Bruce is talking about, 
well, they account for almost half the total carbon emissions that that wind turbine will ever produce. That may sound scary, uh, but don't worry because actually the numbers are really quite small. So wind power generates about six grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour of electricity generated. And for context, gas power, that, that number is 450 grams of CO2 for every kilowatt hour. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's orders of magnitude better. So we can go ahead and start putting these things up wherever we like. Um, interesting, only nuclear power is as carbon efficient as, as wind turbines. Yeah, well, so that that is quite impressive and certainly creates a very much a positive case for for um, for further installation of further wind wind capacity within the energy infrastructure. But let's let's not just stop there. I mean, what what else can you say in terms of the environmental uh, credentials to to turbines? I, I guess particularly with, with a view to to what we do with wind turbines when they're no longer um, needed or able able to function. How how can we deal with those environmental challenges? Yeah, thank. I think that's right. I mean, this the carbon life cycle emissions is great, but as you say, it doesn't really take into account what we do with these things at the end of their life, and um, a lot of them are coming towards the end of their useful lives at this point. Um, wind turbine blades, in particular, are the tricky thing. They're made from uh, usually composite polymer materials like carbon fibres or your fibreglass. And this makes them very strong and very lightweight, ideal for their purpose of spinning around in the wind, but also really very hard to recycle. I mean, recycling fibre-based um, composite materials is next to impossible at the moment. And um, this isn't some trivial problem. This is going to get big. In fact, the European Union estimate that by next year, 10% of all global thermoset plastic waste uh, will be decommissioned turbine blades. At the moment, almost all of these are going straight to landfill, which is uh, not sustainable. Right. So, so obviously, hearing some big problems there. Um, as 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 a patent attorney, you know, patents are there to protect inventions that that solve problems. So, you know, my 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 question naturally has to be what what solutions are there looking to to be in the in the in sort of the patent world that that could solve some of these problems so let's start with where we are today at the moment the ones that don't go to landfill um, what we can do is chop them up and use them as filler for concrete in fact the very same concrete that then goes into the foundations for new turbines so that's something at least um, there's also some uh, some rather striking bike sheds in in, uh, in Denmark and a few bridges in Ireland, which are made from old um, turbine blades. They look great and they uh, make nice headlines, but frankly, these are a drop in the ocean. We we, we can't turn all of our old blades into uh, bike sheds. There just aren't enough bikes. The real solution is going to come when we start designing the wind turbine blades with end of life in mind from the start. And several companies are doing this, and this is evidenced by the patent literature. Um, there's a US sustainable energy contractor called uh, Alliance for Sustainable Energy, and they've developed a thermal welding process which allows turbine blades to be manufactured from uh, fully recyclable thermoplastic, like your sort of PAT drinks bottles, rather than the traditional non recyclable thermosetting plastic. 
and their their patent describes a really interesting process where you you insert copper heating elements between the individual thermoplastic components then you switch the power on and these um, copper heating elements heat up they melt the plastic and the plastic bonds and then you turn it off and then you've attached your wind turbine together um, and these heating elements then remain embedded in the blade once it's finished. So it allows you to make your blade from a uh, much more readily recyclable material, which is great. It also means you don't need to use uh, nasty adhesives, which again can actually extend the life of the blade. And then once the blade does reach the end of its life, you just plug these heating elements back into the power again, and the joints all melt come detached and it makes it much easier to, to recycle. It's a, it's a cracking idea. And then closer to home uh, in Europe, there's a, a specialist materials company called Arkema and they're developing blades which are much more readily recyclable. Their patent describes a, a new liquid thermoplastic resin material known as Ellium, which can be readily recycled using existing recycling streams apparently. And in March um, 2022, the company announced the completion of the world's largest fully recyclable turbine blade with a, with a blade length of 62 meters, which is modest by today's standards, but it's a, it's a very good start for a uh, fully recyclable blade. So while wind power, it's, it's already very green, but it's about to go circular too, if it excuse the pun. The future of the industry is very exciting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm always keen for a pun. So, um, but I do agree with your 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 sentiment about how the solutions of that nature do do certainly put a positive um, outlook onto onto how we can continue to to expand uh, wind capacity globally um, whilst uh, whilst keeping environmental credentials as positive as possible. Um, I, I guess the, there's a thought comes to mind there about some of these innovations where you're doing something now for effectively a problem that it's going to happen in 10 15 years time when the when the the turbine is due to be disassembled but i suppose the the, the important point to note from from a patent perspective there is patents are able to last up to 20 years from when you first file them so obviously if you if you're inventing something now that you see foresee being used in in that sort of time frame, the patent can still be a, a valuable tool to your to your company. Yeah, that's right, Duncan. Um, yeah, a patent term of, of twenty years, you know, it gives an inventor a decent chunk of protection, and uh, and you know, and actually, industries like the wind turbine industry, they move so fast that uh, you know, while something might be shiny and, and new uh, today, in five ten years. Technology has moved on, and so uh, new innovation and new patents will supersede old ones. And in fact, actually, it's a it's a very good idea if you have a, a portfolio growing of, of, uh, of patents and patent applications. It's well worth having a look back through them to make sure that they're still adding value to you, because there is a cost associated with maintaining patent applications. So it's always good to to keep an eye on your portfolio to make sure it's still working for you. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's certainly something we we're always keen to help clients with is making sure their their patent portfolio remains relevant to their business and 
and, and where they see their business going in in the future great well thanks very much adam and and also thanks to bruce and, and olivia we'll we'll just wrap things up now with uh, a short plug if you uh, if you've liked what you've heard or are interested in reading more hearing more about some of today's topics we do have um, a sustainable future newsletter on our website which i think will include the link to when uh, when we publish the podcast um, there's also a range of blogs again on our website for the various insights we've had into the sector and some of the the key challenges and, and opportunities we we think are going to be there in in the coming years and of course we are this is only one of a series of podcasts so keep an eye out for more to come and uh, we'll leave it at that and say thank you very much <laughs>